All right, Revelation chapter number six. Revelation chapter number six. If you were not here last week, um, we uh, began Revelation chapter number six. We did not finish it. And so uh, for those of you that were here, we're just going to take a time of review if we can uh, to get us to where we are. I'm not going to go into the depth and detail that I went into last week uh, for the sake of time uh, so that we can finish Revelation chapter uh, number six tonight. But we are going to go from the very top of our outline and just read our way through it, making small comments um, until we get to the end. I consider just uh, going right to our last point and finishing it. And jumping into the next lesson, but then I realized and remembered that this is the last Wednesday night for the year. Uh, we will not meet uh, next Wednesday night, nor will we meet the following Wednesday night due to Christmas and due to the New Year. So I did not want us to begin something that we would not finish for three weeks. So, uh, so keep that in mind also as you're planning. We will not have services next Wednesday or the following Wednesday, but we will have services on Thursday evening of next week. Uh, at 8 o'clock, which is our candlelight service for Christmas Eve, all right? So right at the top of your outline is where we're going to begin, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. In chapter 4, we saw John caught up to the very throne room of God in heaven, where he gazed upon the rainbow-encircled throne of God, and as it were, the royal court of God, acknowledging the glory of God in creation. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Then in chapter 5, the attention shifted uh, to the seven-sealed book and the one worthy to open, uh, open it. We found in this book uh, contains the unfolding of the consummation of the age, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan to set all creation free from sin and death and to bring judgment upon all those who have rejected him. So that was chapter number five. Chapter number four, uh, we, uh, John was caught up into the heavens. Chapter number five, the glory of the Lord shone round about uh, in, the, in the heavenlies. And uh, all of creation and sin and death were, are going to be brought into judgment uh, for all those that have rejected him. And then the judgments of the book of Revelation begin in chapter number uh, 6 and end in chapter number 19. Actually, 13 of the 22 chapters uh, describe the terrible judgments beginning with the opening of the seven-sealed scroll. The opening of the seven-sealed scroll, which is where we started last week. Much of the book's revelation, and this is the first word that you need, is distasteful. Much of the book of Revelation is distasteful to many modern minds because the world would rather believe God is exclusively a God of love, but God is a God of judgment as well. And we talked about that last week, that many people want to view God as just a God of love. But we know that, yes, God is a God of love and that his grace is being extended even now right here on the earth, but that eventually... The grace will run out and judgment will happen. And so God is a God of judgment as well as a God of love. Though some see the breaking of the seals as beginning in the past and perhaps continuing until the end of the age, uh, there is nothing in history to correspond with the events that transpire when the seven seals are broken. Therefore, it must be concluded that these happenings are in the future. And we talked about this, we have talked about this several times throughout the study of the book of Revelation about what we believe about the tribulation, about the rapture, the pre-trib, the mid-trib, and the post-trib. And we believe that all the events that are going to be happening starting now in chapter number 6 
are all events that are going to be happening in the future, which means that uh, the tribulation is not occurring now. The tribulation is occurring in the future. And based upon Revelation chapter 4 number, and verse number 1, the church is not going to be here when the tribulation happens. Uh, we are going to be taken up into the heavenlies. And so there is nothing in history that corresponds with these events, so it must be that they happen in the future. The opening of the seals continued the description of what John saw when he was caught up to heaven in the throne room of God, beginning in chapter number 4. As the seals are opened in chapter number 6, the, she- the scene shifts from heaven to earth. So chapter number 4, chapter number 5 all happen in heaven. Chapter number 6, the scene is shifted back to earth to the, to the judgment that is beginning to happen. Number 1, the white horse. The white horse. Chapter number 6, let's start reading in verse number 1. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow. And a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. So the first seal is open, and it is the white horse. Now, when the Lamb opens the first seal, one of the four beasts, this is important um, as we get uh, context here, uh, that when it talks about one of the four beasts, is, he is referring to a living creature, a living uh, uh, person. Uh, it is different than in when he opens the pale horse seal and it talks about wild beasts. Those are speaking of animals or wild creatures. Two separate Greek words. Very important that we understand that. And so here in our passage, when we talk about four beasts in chapter number 6 and verse number 2, they are talking about living creatures. So they are verse number 1. So they say, come and see. Come and see is uh, what he said to do. Now, there has been much disagreement as to the identity of the rider on the white horse. And we spent a lot of time on this last week. And I don't have the time to spend on it this week, so I'll just kind of give you a brief overview Basically, the confusion is over whether the rider represents Christ or the Antichrist. There are some similarities to this rider in Christ according to Revelation chapter number 19, verse 11 through 16. And we read that last week. We're not going to read it this week. Uh, But we talked about the white horse differential between the Antichrist and Christ himself. And we looked at Revelation chapter number 19 when Jesus Christ comes back on the white horse. And uh, we looked at what his vesture was dipped in. And we looked at what was on his head, many crowns. And we looked at all those aspects. But when we look at chapter number 6 and verse number 2, it says, And I saw and behold a white horse, and him that sat on him had a what? A what? A bow. So he had a bow. That is not the weapon for the Savior. According to Revelation chapter number 19, verses number 11 through 16, Jesus will not use a bow without arrows. Christ or Jesus will use a sword. He will use a sword. The next statement was made in chapter number 6 and verse number 2. It says, and a crown, singular, a crown. In Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, the Bible says that when Jesus returns, he will return with many crowns. That is correct. Now, I'm jumping ahead, but it should not be any surprise to us that there are similarities between, the Christ, between Christ and the Antichrist. Because the enemy has tried his best 
to resemble and to be like Christ since the very beginning of time when he was excommunicated from heaven. And so here we have him again trying to be likened to the Savior. Why does he have to do that? Because people have to buy into it. They're going to be deceived. They're, they're going to have blinders on their eyes. And they're going to buy into the fact that the Antichrist is who he says he is. But we know, based upon the description of Christ and the description of the first uh, writer, that this is not Christ. This is the Antichrist. And there will be more reasons here in just a moment as to why. There are some striking similarities, I'm continuing on in your outline, between this writer and Christ. But it should be noted this writer had a crown, while the victorious Christ in 1912 has many crowns. Many crowns, that's the word you're looking for there. And it's important that we uh, understand that. Also, the Lamb, Christ, opens the seals. And so because he opens the seals, he would certainly not be one of the riders. And furthermore, there are four riders, we, we have all four riders here that we're looking at with the seals, um, and Christ is not one of four. We have to understand that he is all in one. When we talk about the Trinity, he is all in one. He is not one of anything. He is all in one. Anyone who is familiar with scripture would expect the Antichrist to resemble Christ. We, we looked at some passages of scripture, and I believe they're on your outline in the book of Thessalonians. Uh, where it talks about the Antichrist uh, uh, resembling Christ. You can take those and read those at home. Now, the combination of the conqueror's crown and the bow without arrows indicates that he will go forth conquering and to conquer peaceably, probably through diplomacy. In the beginning, this Antichrist will not appear as the villain that he is. And Paul warns us of this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, verses 2 and 3, because we know uh, the first three and a half years of the tribulation is what? Peace. The second half, the last three and a half years of tribulation is what? It's war. It's, it's terribleness. And so when the Antichrist comes on the scene, you got to understand what's taking place. What has just taken place is that uh, uh, the Christians, the people that are saved, have been taken out of this world. We're gone. We're driving down I-20, boom, we're gone. You get that, right? Like, one day, whew, gone. See ya. Someone's going to have to explain that. Right? Someone's going to have to say, was it an alien invasion? What, what, I mean, what happened to all these people? And the Antichrist is going to step up onto the scene at that moment. And he's got to be one that brings peace to the chaos. He's got to be one that brings peace to the chaos. And uh, many people have said, oh, how is that possible that one person can't, for the whole world to be able to see him and to understand and maybe not, not see him, but at least hear him, that he can bring peace? How is that possible? Well, actually, uh, uh, some, what, let's see here. What's, this is 2015, so 14 years ago. How many of you watched the second plane hit the second tower in New York? It was a matter of minutes between the two hits. But what happened? The first plane hit, the news picked it up, you heard it on the radio in your car, you heard it on the radio at your work, and all of a sudden someone said the first tower is going down. So what did we do? We all scrambled to find a television. And then they estimate, I was reading some statistics, they, re they estimate, which this is a huge number, they estimate 57% of the population of America and around the world watched the second plane hit the second tower 14 years ago. 
Now, do you know what we would do? And we'd watch it. Just in a moment. Yeah, if you can find it, right? Um, Just in a moment, you would be watching the coverage. So it's possible for him to be able to step up and bring peace, and he is likened unto Christ. When Christ comes to the earth again, his weapon will not be a bow with no arrows, and his mission will not be to bring peace. Instead, Revelation tells us that his choice weapon is a sword, and that he is coming in Revelation chapter 19 to judge. He is coming uh, to literally, excuse the terminology, to annihilate those that are remaining. The future conqueror of the white horse will come promising peace and safety and will deceive the world into following him. And then will come the opening of the second seal. The word you're looking for is deceive. Then will come the opening of the second seal. So what's the second seal? Number two, the red horse. The red horse. Verse number three. Chapter number six, verse number three. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast, meaning a living creature, say, come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. So second horse, second seal arrives, it's the red horse, and the red horse comes on the scene to take peace away and to literally uh, uh, cause war, cause havoc. At the opening of each seal, one of the living creatures say, come and see. At the breaking of the second seal, there went out another horse that was red. That was in verse number four. This rider uh, is on a fiery red horse, which symbolizes bloodshed and war. For he will take peace from the earth and cause humanity to kill one another. As further indication of the extensive bloodshed, the rider on the horse has... And, and the, the word of God says he has a great sword, a great sword. This, the peace brought by the first rider will be superseded by manslaughter and murder. The size of the sword denotes the large number of people who will be killed. It was a great sword. And we're going to talk about the population that will be annihilated uh, during these seals. Now, again, I want to reiterate this, especially if you weren't here last week. you got to understand that this is not the scroll. This is not the judgments of the scrolls. This is nothing more than the seals of the scroll. So the scroll has not even been opened yet. It is just being unsealed. And these are the judgments that take place just of the seals. Some have conjectured that this could be a reference, again, stating that we we are in the tribulation, um, they have conjectured that this could be a reference to one of the great persecutions against Christians, like those of Nero and Domitian. But here, people are killing one another. You see what the Bible says? Look at verse number four. It says, And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. So when you think about Nero and you think about Domitian that were, cruci- that were literally killing and crucifying Christians, when you think about that, the Christians or the people that were being persecuted and killed were not killing those that were killing them. They were, it was just a manslaughter by leadership. According to this passage of scripture, we are, they, literally, you're going to be in a mob of people and all of a sudden the seal is going to be open and you're going to turn around and it could be your best friend here on earth. And because of what is open, you turn around and kill them. That's what the Bible says. 
it makes them kill one another. It turns people on each other. And, and literally, this red horse was given a great sword, meaning that there were going to be many people that were going to be killed. In times of persecution, Christians did not kill their persecutors. There is no indication in Revelation as to the date or course of this tremendous bloodshed. So we have the red horse. Well, following the red horse is the breaking of the third seal. I don't know about you, but I'm already thankful that I'm in heaven right now. All right? The, the third seal, the black horse. The black horse. Chapter number six, verse number five. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, come and see. And I beheld and lo, a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Hurt not the oil and the wine. So the third horse is the black horse. The black horse represents the exact thing that comes after war, which is famine and poverty. And it always follows war. John says in verse 5, And he that sat on him had a pair of balances in his hand. The word balances in the Greek literally means scales, indicating everything had to be weighed. And we talked about that last week and how that... You would go up and you would weigh, you're basically going to be weighing your food and you're going to be charged per pound of what you get. It's all going to have to be weighed out. Then John heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts. This is a very interesting study and there's a whole lot more to it that you could study. uh, But for the sake of time we can't. But I'd encourage you to, to, to study this out. This voice speaking out in the midst of the four living creatures seems to be God himself. And at this point God is specifying commodity prices. He's specifying the prices. So what does he say? The Greek word translated measure is a dry measure of less than a quart or about a day's food. The Greek word translated penny was a day's wage for the average laborer. Are you you catching this? So it takes a whole day's labor to buy one day's food. So you're literally working to live. Right? So a whole day's wage is a whole day's food. So a penny, and, and when you think about that, it is a dry measure of less than a quart. I'm sure if you had dinner tonight, you ate more than a quart, right? So you got to think about this. That's for the whole day. Now, obviously, you can make things. So barley was purchased by the poor to mix with wheat. It was the food for slaves and horses, but apparently if purchased instead of wheat, it could feed a small family for a day since it was one-third cheaper. Look at verse number um, 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts saying, a measure of wheat for a penny. So uh, a one measure of wheat for a penny, and then it says three measures of barley for a penny. So you get three times the barley that you could the wheat for the same amount of money. And then it says, and see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. And but... In, in, in Christ's day, in, in, the, in biblical days, literally the, the barley was used for the slaves and for the horses. But in this case, it will be used for everyone because that's what they could afford. These prices indicate a severe shortage, meaning the average worker would barely be able to survive. And if there was a family involved, starvation would be a real serious problem. 
the interesting phrase of hurt not the oil and the wine in verse 6 is not clear. So I want to make sure that you understand that. And I've told you from the very beginning of this study that there will be times that it came that uh, Scripture is not completely clear on what phrases in the book of Revelation mean. And there'll be some times that I say, I don't know. And there'll be other times that I'll say, just as I'm saying here, that it's not clear, but it does have some meaning or some indication. And so this, again, is not 100%, but this is what many scholars believe. That since these were not necessities, meaning the, the oil and the wine, um, like wheat and barley, but were luxuries of the rich, then the rich people would not be affected by the third seal. And we know that based upon history that typically those that are wealthy are not affected by poverty um, because they have the means to be able to handle it. This would be consistent with the fact that the wealthy always fare much better uh, during famine than does the average person because their resources circumvent the shortages. Number four, we're getting close to where we were last week. The pale horse. The pale horse. Verse 7 and 8. The Bible says this, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and him that sat on him was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword, and with hunger, and with death, and with the beast of the earth. So we have the pale horse in verses, pardon me, in verses 7 and 8. The last summoning shout of come and see is uttered by the fourth living creature. And John looks and behold a pale horse. The Greek word translated pale is a pale green like that of a sick or a dead person. So when he talks about pale, he's talking about that pale green of someone that's very ill or someone that has passed away. The color goes along with the name of the rider who is death who was followed by another named hell. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week, and it's important, again, that we reiterate it. In the Greek, that word hell speaks of Hades. We understand that there are two different locations for hell. We understand that there is Hades and that there is the lake of fire, two separate places. When a person that is lost passes away or dies, um, and they do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, they go to Hades, which is literally the holding place until the great white throne judgment. We'll talk about the great white throne judgment uh, several weeks ahead. So they go there until the judgment. And then they are brought to be judged at the great white throne judgment. They're judged out of the book. Meaning whether or not their name was written in the book of life. If their name is not found written in the book of life. The Bible says that they will be cast into the lake of fire. Um, which burneth with hell and brimstone. It's a, a, an everlasting torment. For people that do not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You say, Pastor, that's not fun to talk about. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that hell was only made for uh, the enemy and uh, his, his, the fallen angels. It was never meant for people. Because when Jesus Christ came and sent his son into the world, he came to redeem all. But people make choices. Everyone makes a choice whether or not to accept or to reject Jesus Christ. And those that have rejected Christ will go to Hades. So when it talks about death and hell in Revelation chapter number 6, um, talking about this, this uh, pale horse, he's saying that he, they will die and they will go to Hades and they will await their final judgment, uh, which is the lake of fire. Now, we, we looked at that and we, we translated that because then all of a sudden the question started arising, well, what about the Christian? When a Christian passes from this life to death, they go to 
heaven. There's only one place. The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There's no purgatory. There's no holding place. You, you go immediately, your soul does, um, from, uh, from earth to heaven um, at your last breath. And so there is, there is, no, there is no waiting period. You're in heaven. Uh, you're saved by grace. Now, will we be judged? Yes, we'll go to the judgment seat of Christ. You'll be judged according to the things that you've done here on this earth. Um, but you're not being judged on whether or not you go to hell. You're being judged on the things that you've done here uh, while you're on earth. Because obviously we know that the blood of Jesus Christ covers everything. Any questions about that? I, I know we had some last week. And I just want to make sure we're good. All right, good. Um, at the breaking of the first seal, the world seems to have entered an era of peace where all could anticipate the good life. But this all quickly dissipates as the judgments begin in verse 4. The dream of the good life is shattered by the reality of hunger and starvation, anarchy, violence, and utter chaos. As a result, death and Hades come on the scene. And death claims the body, and Hades claims the soul. Just as whenever a person is saved, heaven, until Jesus Christ takes the church home, heaven claims the soul... And the earth claims the body. And then the Bible says that there will come a time when Jesus Christ returns that the body will meet the soul once again. And in that moment, we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Um, and we'll all be very thankful for that. Amen. All right. Uh, at death, the soul of the lost person goes to Haiti and awaits judgment that will determine the degree of eternal punishment. And this is where we kind of ended uh, last week. Uh, we uh, have a handout in the back of your um, notes there, uh, numbers six through eight, and we ask the question, are there degrees or are there levels of punishment in hell? Will everyone experience the same torment or will there be um, different degrees? And then we started with uh, actually heaven, and I, I'm not going to go through that whole handout. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to look at it um, and read over, and if you have questions, you can talk to me about it. But let me give you a synopsis, or, or just kind of sum it all up for you. Uh, we've all heard in our life um, that sin is sin, and that uh, no matter what, um, if you're, you're a sinner, or you die, you'll go to hell, and, and that's it. Well, the truth of the matter is, and, and, and there was some discussion about this last week at the end of class, so uh, I want to make sure that I'm very clear. Uh, when we talk about the idea that is sin just sin, Here's the reality. In God's eyes, there, there is going to be greater judgment for some. Uh, we read these verses last week um, in, uh, in, in the passage of Scripture that we read. Uh, we read and learned that there will be greater damnation uh, for certain people because of the level of sin that they were involved in. Now, the truth of the matter is, is that when you talk about it from an earthly sense... Uh, sin is sin. I mean, if you're lost and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're going to go to hell. Right? Because we're all born sinners, right? Thanks to Adam and Eve, we're all born sinners. So, so when we talk about sin in that aspect, yes, there, there is not a lesser sin that will get you into heaven. I mean, it's just not going to happen. You have to accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior to get into heaven. Now, once we're saved, do we still sin? Yes, why? Because we're still flesh and, and we sin. So uh, we do that. Now, 
uh, you know, when you talk about, you know, is there a greater sin here on earth? If somebody goes and murders somebody uh, and, and they get judged for that, in God's eyes, is that a greater sin than those that go and, and uh, you know, rob someplace? Well, in, in, when you look at the judicial court system, murder has a greater um, punishment than that of theft, right? So, certainly... Uh, in, 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 in the judicial system, there are levels. Just like when we look at the word of God, it talks about those that have openly rejected me. And, and, and I just, we don't have time to do it all tonight. But it's in your out, uh, handout that I gave you. We talked about this in detail last week. Those that have, have openly rejected Christ, those that have trampled under the feet of Christ, the Bible says that there will be greater damnation for them when it talks of hell. And so we know that there are levels, there are different punishments. Just like, in retrospect, there are different rewards in heaven. Uh, the Bible talks about the five crowns that we studied. The Bible talks about, if you are faithful in a few, I will make you ruler over many. Uh, we know that there are going to be different levels of leadership and positions in heaven uh, different rewards for the things that you've done here on earth, just like there'll be different punishments for those uh, that have totally uh, uh, turned their back on Christ and, and, and made a, uh, a mockery of who Jesus is, okay? That's where we stopped last week. Now, I'm scared to do this, but let me ask, is there any questions about that? I only have like a 15 minutes to finish this lesson. Is there any questions about that? All right, I hope between last week and this week, we kind of cleared all of that up. And again, if you have a question and you don't feel comfortable asking openly, you can email me, text me, uh, Facebook me, whatever you want to do, and we can further clear that up. But it's all right there written for you. And again, I do my best to not make it my opinion. I, I don't want this to be opinionated. We have to use scripture. And so I, that's what I've given you in that handout of scripture to, to give proof to what I'm speaking of. Okay? All right, let's, let's keep going. The effect of the breaking of the fourth seal is the fourth part of the earth is killed. Now, this seems to mean that one-fourth of the world, we're back in our outline under the pale horse, um, this seems to mean that one-fourth of the world will die from the sword, which was war, or hunger, or death, and with the beast of the earth. So, one-fourth of the world will be annihilated. Look at verse number eight. And I looked and behold a pale horse... And his name, that, or his name that sat on him was death and hell, followed with him. And power was given unto them over the what? Fourth part of the earth to do what? To kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. So this one seal, are you ready for this? This one seal is going to annihilate one-fourth of the earth. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. So what is that, what is that in real numbers? Well... The total count here, and I, I went researching uh, from the last census that we did uh, here in America, or in the world, excuse me, uh, total world population, the total death count here would be more than about 1,750,000,000 at today's population figures of 7 billion people alive on the earth. So in one seal, are you see this? In one seal, 1 billion 750 million people are annihilated. Wow. By war, by hunger, by pestilence, by disease, and by wild beasts. 
And that wild beast um, is speaking of an actual animal or creature. Such losses were thought impossible before the atom, before nitrogen and neutron bombs, as well as the deadly germ warfare um, gases of today. Uh, it, it seemed impossible, but can I tell you, the reality of it is, is that we have the technology, we have the ability to uh, make this happen in one felt swoop. Now, the chaotic state of the world seems to set the stage for beasts to kill people. The Greek word translated beast here means wild beast. This should be distinguished from the Greek word um, in chapter 4 and verse number 6, also translated beast, but means living creature. So we've talked about that to make sure we differentiate. This is actually talking about an animal, two separate, uh, or a wild beast, two separate Greek words. So one is an animal that will help destroy one-fourth of the population, and the other is talking about the living creatures of the people that are opening the seals. Now, what kind of beast um, is not specified? However, as some have pointed out, rats have been responsible for killing more people than all the wars in history. Now, that's an exciting thought, isn't it? You want to go home and look in your attic, don't you? <laughs> rats have been responsible for killing more people than all the wars in history. I found this to be very interesting. I was sharing this with my in-laws on Sunday. I, I had no idea. I know, right? This is what we talk about in the car. What kind of beast could kill you? Um, and we were actually getting lunch when we were doing it. Um, I'm sorry. This is, this is who I am. Um, uh, they have been reported, rats, to carry as many as 35 diseases, and their fleas carried the bubonic plague that killed a third of Europe in the 18th century. This information gives us only an idea of how wild animals can contribute to the death could contribute to death on a worldwide scale. So it's happened before. How many of you know about the bubonic plague? And the, the rats are the carriers of the diseases that killed a third of the people in Europe. So it, it's not, so, so I want you to take this into consideration. Are you ready? Let's just kind of put it all into perspective here, all right? So the fourth seal is open. We've got war going on. We've got bloodshed going on. We've got death and hell that are, that are just swooping the earth, killing people. And then we have some type of wild beast running rampant on the earth, killing people. This is not going to be a pleasant time in the history of our world. You say, Pastor, why would God... Why would God allow all of this to happen? I want to remind you of something. That we serve a God who has immense grace. You say, what do you mean, Pastor? I want you to think about something for a second. Because the other day I was sitting in my office and I was really contemplating this. You know, we talk about God and love and, and grace and mercy and all those things. And and I'm studying this, and I'm thinking, this is, I mean, this is just tragic, and this is just the beginning of what's coming. And then I begin to think. I begin to think. From the very beginning of time of Adam, God has 
bestowed grace upon every nation and upon every person. We're talking thousands of years. We're talking possibly from the time of Adam, somewhere in the neighborhood of six to 7,000 years that the Lord has bestowed grace. And yet God's judgment is only seven years. And actually the judgment part of it is only three and a half years. So when we compare grace to judgment, it helps us understand who God really is. It's kind of like a parent. Now, we wouldn't kill off one-fourth of our population, but, you know, as a parent, you want everything inside of you to continue to give grace to your child and to give them another chance, right? right? Let's just be honest, you know, really deep down inside of us. We just want to give them one more chance. But we know that unless we do something to correct it, it's never going to stop. same way it is with our earth can i tell you something there is never going to come a moment in our world where somebody turns the light switch on and goes wait a minute let's all become christians let's all turn to god it's not going to do that it's going to be just like a child our world started out and it has done nothing but waxed worse and worse and worse and worse and worse so what is it is in the life of our children if we don't, if we, if correction is not in order they will get worse and worse and worse and worse to the point of no return right? And then you say, pastor, but what happens then? They self-destruct. Look at our world, right? So what happens here in the progression of grace is, yeah, we serve a God of grace and a God of mercy, but eventually that has to run out because it's never going to go the other way. That is why God has to rain judgment upon this earth, because he's promised it. And because he's given so much grace and so much mercy. That's why it's so important that as Christians, that we take what we know and we tell somebody. So that they don't end up in this place. They don't end up here. Why do we do do big programs and bring people in? Why do we do it? Not so that we can show off. Not so that we can say, look at our beautiful, wonderful church. No. We We do it to tell them, Jesus loves you. And that he wants you and that he cares for you and that we do not want you to go through this. That's why we do it. No one can say for sure exactly what all this means. But it must not be overlooked that there is a remarkable parallel between the four horsemen of Revelation chapter 6 and what our Lord said on his Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24. Now, it is not, it is 752. There is no way I'm going to be able to do this. But, so here's homework. You got three weeks. Um, In the book of Revelation, uh, chapter number 6, and Matthew chapter number 24, there are, uh, there is a great parallel of what Christ is talking about here in Revelation and what Christ was speaking about on on his Olivet Discourse. And it's amazing as you begin to compare the studies of the white horse and the red horse and the black horse and the pale horse. And you see how that God aligned this from the very beginning. 
And so you go home and you study it, and if you don't see it or you're confused about something, uh, pick up the phone or, or send an email or something and say, can you kind of give me a little bit more explanation? But there is a great parallel here of these horses and what Christ was talking about in Matthew chapter number 24 um, as he was speaking. All right? So it must be noted that the first four seals are basically preliminary happenings. The scroll itself is not yet open. The seals are merely being broken, so it can be open. And that is what Jesus meant in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 8, where he says, "All all these are the beginning of sorrows. All of these are the beginning of sorrows. And he talks about that um, as he's speaking on, on uh, Mount Olives, as he's speaking to the people. He's saying, listen, when we talk about all of this, this is just the beginning of sorrows. Which really is a hard thing to grasp. But again, understanding who God is. If we carefully look around our world today, We can understand what Billy Graham said in his book, Approaching Hoofbeats. This is what he said. I can hear the hoofbeats of these horses, talking about these horses in Revelation, much louder than when I began writing this book. Boy, oh boy, what a great thought. You know, the truth is, is that Jesus is coming soon. He's coming soon. And we need to be prepared. We need to be a prepared people. You say, Pastor, well, I'm, I know Jesus Christ is my personal Savior. I, I, know, I know. That's great. That's wonderful. But the question is, is what are you doing with what you have? Are, are we concealing it? Are we keeping it to ourselves? Are we just using it, excuse the terminology, as, as some kind of insurance for the rest of our life? Or are we taking what Jesus Christ did with us, through us, and in us and sharing it? And not only sharing it, but using it to further the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That is our goal. That is our mission. That is our motivation. And so tonight as you look at these very few verses and the first four seals that are being opened, it should really bring us to thought. And the thought that it should bring us to is this, listen to me, this is real. This isn't, this isn't a, a movie that we're going to watch. This is a real life event that are going to take place. And we need to be prepared. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? I, I know we don't do this on Wednesday nights, but... You know, the truth is, is that we, we have to be ready. We have to be ready. And if we're not ready, we're going we're, we're gonna to get to the end of our lives, and we are going to, we're going to face the judgment of God. And it's not something that you want to face. And God has once again extended his grace to us. And so if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, can I tell you that tonight could be the greatest night of your life, that you could turn your heart and your life over to Him. Because He doesn't, His desire for you is to see you have an eternal place in heaven. With that being said, please know that the very gift of salvation is a free gift. 
It is a gift that he gives to all that will receive. And it's a very... It's a very open and very free and very simplistic, not simplistic in what Christ did for us on Calvary, but simplistic in the fact that he's made it so available to us here. The Bible says that we are all born sinners and that we all need a Savior, Jesus Christ. And our payment for sin is death, but the gift... And that gift is Jesus Christ dying on the cross, being buried and rising again. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in simpleman's terms, it would be this. For if Lee, that's my name, will call upon my name, will call upon me, speaking of Jesus, then Lee can be saved and Lee will be saved. It's an emphatic verb. So tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's as simple as this. It's, a, it, it's accepting that you're a sinner, believing that Jesus died on the cross for you, and confessing your sins. If you would say this, you would say a prayer like this. It's not the prayer that saves you, it's what you believe in your heart. You would say, dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And that I know that I need a Savior. And I invite you into my heart to be that Savior because I desperately need you. Lord, I give my life to you completely. You say, Pastor, that's too easy. Well, the truth of the matter is, is that if we believe it in our heart, it's true. It is a total belief system. It's a total giving your heart to him. I'm not in the habit of embarrassing anybody, so I would never do that. But I want you to know tonight that if you did pray that prayer, that today is the greatest day of your life. Because you have escaped hell. You've escaped the judgment. And you will have an eternal place in heaven. If you would say, Pastor, I did that tonight. I ask Jesus into my heart. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, stand up, come running down here. I'm not going to ask you to do that. This is what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm just going to ask you to let your eyes hit my eyes. Just lift your head up, look at me in the eyes, and put it right back down. Say, Pastor, I did that tonight. I, I gave my life to Christ. And I've never heard it like that before. I've never heard how much Jesus Christ really loves me. I never realized what I might be missing. You say, Pastor, that was me. I'm going to start on my left, your right. And I'm just going to scan the room. And if you look at me, I I promise you, I will not come to you and I will not embarrass you. I just want to pray for you. If that's you, would you just take your eyes and look right at me? I'm going to start on my left. Here I go. God bless you. I'm in the middle. God bless you. You see, you never know what God is up to. But the one thing I do know is that God speaks. And all we have to do is listen. And I want you to listen to me tonight. If you looked at me in the eyes and you really meant it and you really believe it, your life will never be the same. It is at this moment that you've made the decision to give your heart 
and everything that you have to God. And I promise you, if you'll listen to me, I promise you, he will secure it, he will steal it, he will protect it, and he will protect you because he loves you and he cares for you. And now all you've got to do with the rest of your life is just say, Lord, here am I. I need you. I'm giving my life to you. Use me like only you can. Father, we love you. Lord, I'm thankful tonight that you speak to our hearts and that you speak to us. And so, God, I pray for these that looked at me in the eyes tonight. Lord, you know who they are. Lord, and we long for you. We long for you. And so, God, tonight I pray that these individuals will make the greatest decision of their life be a, be a decision that is transforming, be a decision that will radically change who they are as they turn from their old path and their own way and turn to you. Lord, we're thankful tonight for the word of God. We're thankful that it's powerful. We're thankful that it still speaks to hearts and to lives. Lord, we love you. But most of all, we thank you for loving us. For it's in your precious and holy son's name we pray. Amen.